Alan Crane Productions, in association with the Emergent Life Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Spring Semester 2024. Today, bonds and yield curves. The uh, you will have a quiz at the uh, at the end of the period, and we will go through one last example of the um, spreadsheet that I've been showing you as part of what I'm doing now. But starting it off, well, let me put up the projector first here. This is not a, uh, an easy day to characterize. Everything is down right now, but if you look at the percentages, they are just somewhat negative. It was trying to stay positive. The bulls were fighting early, but after the lunch hour, which was uh, actually here we're an hour later, but uh, yeah, but it's got got grim. The bulls, the bears, finally have taken a little bit of control of it, but there's still not much of a negative sentiment. It's just down a little bit. The Dow down a quarter of a percent, and then the uh, S and P 500 down somewhere about third of a percent. But the Nasdaq is down just barely. It's been really volatile. And it's kind of difficult to say where it's going to go from here, but it's definitely not a day that's easy to explain, other than that there is good news and bad news both going on, but nothing's too dramatic on either front. Now, I want to take you over here very quickly. Now, the crude oil has been working its way upward. It seems to be on a roll ever since about midday. It's been trying to pull upward, and we're still within that trading band, 72 to 79, but it's kind of climbing up there a little bit close to the upper level of it. A little bit higher gas prices maybe, but right now the gas prices are kind of being driven more by supply and demand conditions uh, out there on the, in the pipelines to the, uh, on the trucks to the retail side. Hard to say, but gold is down, which is good news because that simply means that there's no panic and there's no buying gold because the economic end of times is coming. So that's good news right there. The 10-year bond has been climbing. Unfortunately, the yield is back up there again. Uh, it's gone up about four and a half basis points. So that would mean that if the yield is rising, the price is falling, and that would mean that there is selling of the bonds, getting rid of the bonds. And there's also some getting rid of the stocks as well. But it's not going into gold or anything like that. So it's probably just parking to the sideline, money market stuff, just to see what's going to happen. And you had kind of an odd day um, over in uh, in Japan. Well, it wasn't terrible. It just it walked up and then it just kind of walked back down some of what it had gained, hardly anything for the day. And the London, it was just bad all day. It wasn't a horrible day, though. If you look at that percentage, it looks terrible when you see the red spark chart. But when you look at the percentage, 
that's hardly anything at all, 0.29%. So it's just one of those a little bit on the grouchy, bearish side, but it's nothing dramatic. It's not like the end of the world is coming or anything like that, which is good news. Now, let me uh, take you on a little bit of a journey here. Now, I'm going to, here's something. This is chapter seven, but I'm going to walk back into a little bit of chapters five and six, just to reinforce and to bring up some new things. And I'm also going to show you an improvement on that spreadsheet. One last improvement that will help you on uh, the midterm exam. Also, um, as far as the current chapter, chapter seven is bonds. Now, as far as the midterm is concerned, I will, on the midterm, I will do the qualitative, the terms and the concepts part of the bonds chapter. But the calculations part, I'll do those on Wednesday with you and we'll do them in Excel so it won't be horribly painful, but I will not ask the numerical questions about the bonds. In other words, calculating yields and, and prices and all that kind of stuff. I won't ask those on this midterm exam. They're fair game for the final, of course, but it's just a little too close. Doing that on Wednesday and then next week is your midterm. That's a little close for, uh, that's a little too close in time for you to actually master it. So the qualitative stuff, names, terms, and all that, yeah, that's, your, that's fair game, but not the math, mathy part of it. But, a couple of things, and this will sound like I'm going back and forth between a couple of subjects, but they are actually all tied together here, as I hope you'll see eventually. But as I told you earlier in the course, there are all these different words and terms that mean about the same thing. Interest rate, yield, return. They're all the same. They're all the same thing. They're, they're a percentage uh, or a decimal if you do it with the math. But so return yield rate about all about the same term, uh, but we use a different one for each different subject. So, for example. When we're talking about stocks, holding a stock, we have one term called the holding period return. Otherwise known as the HPR. HPR. And this is a fairly simple term. All you do is you take the ending value over the beginning value minus one. So for example, yeah, you sir, you uh, put $100 into an account and in a year it's worth 110. So that would be an HPR of 110 over 100 minus one or 10%. Now, you, on the other hand, madam, you put $100 in, and in six months, you have $110. So you have 110 over 100 minus one, so you have 10%. They look the same. 
But there's the problem. This holding period, holding period here was one year. The holding period here was six months. So they're not the same units. That's what we have to do in finance, is convert all of them into a common base, what we call the annualized or the annual. Now this one is already an annual return. It's 10%. So that is an annual return. That's desirable, we, well, that's what we want. But this one isn't an annual return, it's a half year return. So we would have to convert that into an annualized return. Well, you say, well, okay, that's easy enough to do, fat boy. Just take your times two, two semi. No, you can't do it that way. That's called the arithmetic way. But in the real world, we have to use the compounding way. What's called the, in math, it's called the geometric approach. And uh, that's a little bit more complicated. So that's a holding period return is up there, the HPR. However, the annualized way to do it would be to take the ending period over the beginning period to the one over the number of years. Try to write this large and I'm not. I appreciate it. Minus one. That's the annualized way of doing it. And that is actually at the very top of your uh, formulas sheet. So you've got this on that, that remember that financial for, uh, analysis formula formulas? That, that guy right there, there, it's at the top. One over the number of years. So this one would be 110 over 100 to the 1 over 1 year minus 1, which would, of course, be 10%. This one, however, would be 110 over 100 to the 1 over 0.5 year minus 1. Now, I can't do that in my head. I'm not even going to try. Now, bear with me here a minute while I get this off the board here. And I'm going to pull up. I'll just use the TI calculator I've got here to do this and clear it. And so I'll do one open parenthesis. Don't forget parentheses. They're very important here. 110 divided by 100. Now, for heaven's sakes, you probably already know this, but let me, I'm emphasizing to the, now for this second one, I'm going to open parenthesis, 1 divided by 0.5, close the parenthesis. Notice how you have to trap that, that exponent in its own parentheses. Don't forget to do that. And also, don't forget to do what I forget to do. You for, don't forget to put that minus one. It has to be there. What comes out if you don't looks like a percentage, but it isn't. So I warn you that it, that one can trick you. But if I do that in this case, let me see what that comes out to be. 
Notice that it isn't 2 times 10. The reason is that the compounding of the first amount, that extra earnings from that first amount, if you took it to a second, would cause you to have a greater return in the second period than in the first. So that's why that has to be done. Now, it's not bad to do it. Let me show you. For, uh, so, for example, um, we'll do one here. You're an investing genius. Yes, you are. Huh? Certainly better than I am, considering how I've been doing lately. But let's try this one. You buy a stock for $58.35 and sell it three years later. for $70.84. Okay, now I'm going to show you the magic. First, I'm going to do it on the calculator, and then I'm going to show you what I've done in your spreadsheet that'll make it a lot easier. Well, it would be the end, 70.84 over the beginning, 58.35. Now you close that in parentheses and you raise it to one over the number of years minus one. It's not too bad. The only reason I would criticize this method is because you can make a mistake with a parenthesis. But if we watch what we're doing, it won't be anything terrible. Open parenthesis. Uh, what was it? 7084. Dollars and eighty-four cents divided by fifty-eight thirty-five, thirty-five, and then we close the parenthesis, and then we raise that. Open parenthesis one divided by three. Close the parenthesis, and this is where you make the mistake. Where I make the mistake anyway, minus one. 6.68% is your annualized return. That's an annualized return, an APR. 6.68% on your investment. This way, I can look at different investment holding periods, and the results all come out in the same units. So I could look at this one, compare it to one I'd held for five years or for two years, and the results are all uh, tell me the same units of it. So I'm not measuring feet against uh, meters and all that kind of stuff. Now, let me show you what I've done here. You go and go in, you'll go in to your spreadsheets, to files, 
And you're going to go down here to the one that you've already downloaded, and you'll want to download this latest version. Where the hell is it? Oh, spreadsheets. Duh. I got to get the spreadsheets up. Uh, spreadsheets. Try it again. There we go. Now, present values and future values. And I'm going to download this one. Download. Now, the first worksheet in here, is there some reason that didn't happen or did it actually happen? Downloads. Yeah, there it is. Okay. So I've got it. Oh, I see it. It opened it. Duh. Okay, now, the first sheet is the one that you recognize already, the one that I've shown you how to do. It's just a good, uh, it's just one of those sheets. It'll save your bacon getting present values of annuities, future values of annuities, payments on loans, effective rates. It's a very nice tool. You'll probably want to keep it in your archives for the rest of your life, just as, just of, as a, uh, one of the pieces of memorabilia. However, I've added this one, annualizing. Now, I just did the first version of this. And I'll show you the second version where you can do days instead of years. But watch again. We'll do the same thing we did, 5835 for the beginning. 58.35, and then we'll do the second one, uh, 70.84, and this one is three years, and I'm going to show you how to do this trick so that you get your units. What's wrong? Oh, 58.35. Well, yeah, I was going to say that's a damn good investment. 58.35. Now, I did that just so you could see how easy it is to make a type of... <laughs> There's your answer. And what I like about this is when you use the formula, you have to remember to put the last one on top and the first one on the bottom. Here... Once you you've got complete free reign free reign over architecture in Excel, so I put them in the natural order. The first is on top, the second one is next, all that. You got your answer to one of these. Really easy. The real pain in the butt comes when you have days instead of years, and that. It's nothing. Once, if you know the number of days, you bought a stock for eighteen dollars and seventy one cents and sold it, let's say, 12 days later for $19.41. 
That doesn't look like much of a return. But if I look at it on an annualized basis, I can do $18.71, and I'm using the days between column now, and in 12 days, in the ending value, was $19.41. And I did that for 12 days. That's a hell of a return. That's what day traders play for, is just to have make a few bucks or a, a few cents over and over and over again through a year, and those annualized yields chain together. That's the power of mutual funds, too, sometimes. If it just keeps reinvesting your dividends or re selling stocks and then putting the money back into a new stock, you can have a hell of a chain of annualized returns that turn into an annual return. And that's, like I said, that's how day traders try to play it. They just win a little bit at a time, but in annualized terms, if you can keep doing that, it is appalling how much you can make off it. That's the way to do it in days. Now, what happens though, and I, I, I'll, I may put this in, I won't ask it on an exam. If you had something like, you bought a stock on 14 March 2021 for $26.15 and sold it on 17 September. 2023 for $30.19. Now that's a little more of a problem because you need to get days or decimals of years. You can get the days, it's probably the easier. There's a way in Excel, and I haven't put it in here, and I, the, the reason being I won't ask this, but all you have to do, and this is a, just a nasty little stupid pet trick, I can go over here, Google, and like I said, you can do this right in Excel, but I'm not going to do it that way. Just show you, I'm just giving you an illustration. Days between dates. I don't want it in Excel. It should give you a calculator for it. Date, duration, calculator, time and date. So you just give it, in this case, um, 14 March 2001. So that'd be March at once first, 03, 14th, uh, and I said, what? 14th of March, 2021. And then you sell it on September the 
what did I do there September the 17th, thank you, 2023, 2023, well, there we go, 2023, calculate the duration, 187 days is, oh, geez, really? There's what I did. See, I was just, again, I'm just testing to make sure that you're doing okay here. 2023. Wow. I was going to say that's... What? Also, it wasn't me. There. Now calculate the damn thing. 917. <laughs> you saw that. I didn't... Okay, anyway. So 917 days. So I know 917 days. So I can go back here to Excel and say 917 days and then put in the numbers for the 2615, 26.15, and then 3019. So I got an annualized return again. And again, the whole point of this is to turn everything into the same units of measure, annualized returns. So one thing, notice that if your holding period return is one year, your annualized is your annual. You remember, you see that? If, it's, if it is a one-year holding period, then your annual and your annualized will come out to be the same. However, if they are different, then you just use this little trick of Excel that I've given you right here. So just download this newest version of the sheet and you'll have this if I ask one on an exam. I'm not saying that I would, but on a midterm, this makes you look like a hero if you can quickly spit out the answer if I give you a holding period of, let's say, you held it for 12 years and you started with this and you ended with that what is the annualized rate of return and you can just push it in here and out comes your answer now there are actually in um, in your calculator there's a way to do this that's do you see this calculator turns off to save battery why do, anyway okay you can use the formula, but there is actually a way in uh, here to do it as well. As a matter of fact, I'll, let me show you something here. Apps, finance, there is actually a routine called DBD. There it is. Where you can actually put in two dates and get the number of, years be, a number of days between them. But... Uh, you don't need to worry about that. Like I said, I'm not going to do one where you have to actually calculate days. But it's there for you if you need it at some point for your own purposes. But that's for you to use as uh, a way to just make begin to see and make sure that you see the formula. Like, for example, this formula here, I nothing took in the days one. I took the number of days, or rather, I took the ending value divided by the beginning value, D3 over D2. And I raised that to 1 over 
And then I took the days divided by the years to turn it into decimal of years. And then I did my minus one. That's all I did to create this formula. And that's the kind of ability that I want you to finally, by the end of this course, begin to say, okay, I can do this kind of formula architecture and make my life a lot easier for problems that I encounter in courses, in homework, and also if you run into this stuff in your personal or professional life. Now I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey here. Uh, it's partly story based and it's kind of a, you might even find it to be a little bit disturbing what I show you, what I teach you about. But taking this off the books, off the map here, take you on a bit of a story. Now, in the world of finance, economics, and all of that, we always annualize. It, well, if we possibly can. So that we're not, there's no haze, there's no question of what the holding period, holding period is. So if I were to talk about the yield on a bond, I would know that the answer that, or if I saw a number for the yield, it would be an annualized amount of money. An annualized amount of money. So, taking that as the starting point, reminding you, and again, I'm going to use these terms rate, yield, return, kind of interdependently. Yeah, interchangeably, I should say. Now, you remember the, the formula for an interest rate is the risk-free rate plus the default premium plus the maturity premium plus the illiquidity premium. Oh, nice to have in your note card for the exam. Now, you remember that the risk-free rate is the real rate plus the expected inflation premium. Now we work on the assumption that all rates are underlain by that rate. It parks there as the base of all rates. Uh, I, I, I could even tell you, sir, do you have a skeleton? I hope so. Well, we'll say that you do because you're not... Well, I mean, I don't like those pictures. I saw a picture of my, uh, this CT scan of me. God, actually I was better looking than I am with my skin on, but that's just me. You have a skeleton, and of course, you do too. And uh, we all have one. You don't have to see it. I mean, if you see it, you have a little accident and you see your skeleton sticking out. Or with me, I ate some ungodly hot sauce, and I, my skull came out to get some air. But aside from that, we don't see it, but it's there. So the risk-free rate is going to sit there underneath all of us, and the risk-free rate sits there underneath all interest rates. It has to be the baseline of interest rates. If you had some investment, we promise you negative 18%, 
well, how much will I get on a T-bill? Four uh, percent. Well, you would never do an investment that did not provide at least the risk-free rate. And then some based upon those, uh, pr those risk premia pieces. <sighs> okay, so that's sort of the baseline of it. Now, the next thing here is that another one that we would see the same number in any class of investments or securities would be this risk of the um, maturity premium, R sub M. If two bonds are both 10-year bonds, they should have the same maturity premium. If uh, a one-year uh, one treasury bill and a one-year uh, piece of commercial paper from a private corporation, they are both going to last a year, so they are both exposed to exactly the same risks of interest rate volatility over a year. Ah, oh, I forgot to bring it. Okay, we'll just do it this way. So the maturity premium, if they're the same number of years, they should be the same. The only ones that would be different would be the default premiums and the illiquidity premiums. Now, if we're talking about high quality investments, there should be virtually no illiquidity premium. That starts to show up when you have things that are very difficult to get rid of. A bank has, would have a hard time selling its car loans. A, um, someone, uh, a, a bank that uh, made a loan on a promissory agreement, that would, uh, that would have a, the bank would have a hard time selling those. A junk bond uh, would actually, if an investor had a junk bond and wanted to dump it, sell it, he, he might have a while to, before anyone would pick that bond up in the, uh, in the uh, secondary market. I actually had, well, I've got a better story, but I actually had a junk bond for a while, and I decided this isn't going anywhere. I'm going to lose my shirt on this thing. And I put in the order to sell it. That thing didn't transact for like three days. You know, usually when you put in a sell order, bling, it's done with a normal stock or with a normal bond. But with junk bonds, that's not always the case. But anyway, now let me get back to something here. Suppose that we have a corporate triple A bond. Something that's really high quality. I can get rid of that instantly so there's no illiquidity premium. Now the R its yield is going to be the risk-free rate, which is the same for everything. Plus, it's going to have the corporate default on AAA. 
The default premium on AAA corporate bonds, which should not be much, but it's there. Plus, the maturity, and let me write up here, a 10, uh, uh, I don't know, a 10 year. Plus, the maturity premium on a AAA corporate bond that's 10 years in duration plus the illiquidity premium on a AAA corporate bond. Bear with me, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Well, you know, that might be what? The, we see that the yield on that bond right now is 4.68%. Well, here we go. What if we look at a 10-year government treasury note? That thing that I've been showing you every day, one of those. Okay. Well, R for that one would be the risk-free rate plus the default premium on a government bond plus the maturity premium on a government bond plus the illiquidity premium on a government bond. You notice that those three pieces are going to be individualized. However, in this case, there's some, a couple of special things. First things first, the corporate and the government, a AAA corporate bond and the government bond will both have illiquidity premiums of zero. You can get rid of them right away. There's no cost to it other than maybe a transactions fee, but Okay, another one. These are both 10 year, so their maturity premiums should be identical. So I'm working my way down here. I'm gonna subtract the top corporate from the bottom government. So the illiquidity premium, zero minus zero, is gonna be a zero. The maturity premiums are going to be the same. So the corporate risk uh, maturity premium and the government maturity premium are going to be the same. So when you subtract them, you get zero. Now, the default premium on the triple A, there is no default premium on the government bond. It won't default, not notwithstanding. It shouldn't. No, not well, look. Okay, when the government owes money, one, it can print money, right? Which we do all the time. Or, of course, it could, <sighs> if necessary, we could raise taxes on some poor sucker middle class people to pay it. Or, if that fails, we can just declare war on a country on false grounds and take over the country and liquidate everything in it, which we do. 
We're not going to default. And, you know, the next time we get close to it, we'll just maybe have a war, and I'll recommend you for combat. So, in other words, this one, R sub D of the AAA corporation bond, minus zero for the R sub D of the government bond, leaves us with the default premium. Risk-free rate minus risk-free rate is zero. So, in other words... If I take a corporate double AAA bond and subtract the yield, the yield on a corporate AAA bond minus the yield on the same maturity of a government bond, I should be able to get the default premium on corporate AAA bonds. That's how we tease them out. So suppose that I know that the T-bill uh, the, uh, the corporate bond is right now at a yield of 6.8%, and the government bond is at 4.35%, let's say 3.5%, then I know that the default premium is 33 basis points. Why is this important? We watch this day-to-day, -day, week to week. If that default premium starts getting bigger, we know that the markets are sensing trouble in corporate America with the economy. As it shrinks, we know that there is less possibility of default in corporate America in the high grades, and that will tell us the economy is doing well. It's one of our hidden, way, hidden ways that we can watch what the markets are assessing as the sentiment about defaults in the corporate world. We can do this with single A and double A as well, just to see, keep an eye on, is the or default premium expanding? Is it staying the same? Is it contracting? Is it getting bigger for the, for the A's, but not for the triple A's? Well, that would tell us that there's problems in the lower ranks of American corporations. It's one of our health checks. And it's a useful one, too. Uh, now, I want to, one brief caution. You can't really do this with grades below A because you begin to get into problems with the illiquidity premium. It's not zero on the corporate bonds. It's a little harder, as I mentioned, to dump a junk bond than it is a high-quality investment-grade bond. But for the upper-level bonds, the triple A's, double A's, single A's, it's a decent way to keep an eye on the pulse of various levels of corporate America and how they're, what the markets are assessing their default risks are. Right now, that default premium has been shrinking over the past six months, well, the past three months, definitely. So we do know that from looking at that default premium on corporate bonds, which we get by just taking the average of the corporate bonds minus the average of that 10-year treasury bond, we get a measure and we see that, yeah, the markets are seeing less and less chance of default of the big dog corporations. This is never very big. If this thing gets up to more than 
like 80 basis points. That's scary. It's usually <coughs> maybe 15 basis points or something like that. But I just did this one for emphasis. Now let me show you something. Let me get this, this stuff off the board. We have a graphic and the numbers behind it that we keep an eye on. Because it tells us something. It's one of the ways that we have historically been able to see the future through a dark crystal ball. It's called a yield curve. And as its name implies, you take time to maturity of different maturities of the same bond and you graph those against a vertical axis, which is the yield on those. In our case, what we've used <coughs> traditionally are treasury debt securities. All the way from three months, plot the yield on a three month, on a six month, on a one year, on a two year, three year, five year, seven year. And we get a graph of the yields. What they should look like. The yield should rise because of the maturity premium. The time to maturity gets longer, the maturity premium, everything else about it being the same, R sub D, R sub F, R sub IL. Okay, but the maturity premium should give us a nice upward rising yield curve. That's healthy. Now if it rises too fast, that can be a little bit worrisome because that tells us that the markets are expecting future inflation to accelerate. So you don't want it to go way too fast. But a nice, smooth, rising yield curve should be a glorious thing. It's a normal economy. Unfortunately, for about a year, well, more than a year now, we have had the technical name for it is a weird-ass economy. It is strange. It's not behaving. And the yield curve is really misbehaving. Now let me show you something. A couple of yield curves that you don't like. A yield curve that would be downward sloping that's virtually an apocalypse. We don't ever want to see one like that. That would be a, a marker of a really great depression or a, def uh, or a deflation. Something that we really, we hate inflation. We really don't ever want to see a deflation. Well, what's wrong with that? Price is going down. Yeah, that's because the economy is closing its shop forever. We don't want to see that one ever. There's one that we do see from time to time and this is one that we can use for forecasting 
Because if one of these happens, you're looking one day and suddenly it looks, the yield curve looks like what I'm about to show you. We know that there is probably going to be a recession within six to nine months. That's how serious it is. Every the one I'm going to show you, every recession has been preceded by the one I'm going to show you. Every recession. Now, not always does this one, if you see it, will there be a recession? Sometimes it just barely makes it skids by a recession, but we definitely have a downturn. The one I'm about to show you here is called an inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve starts out nice, and then it has a place in it where a longer term yield is below uh, the yield before it. That would be an inverted yield curve. Like the seven year uh, yield might be 6.5% um, and the 10 year yield would be 6.3%. You see it not going in the right direction. Now the first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna find you a normal yield curve. A normal yield curve. Let's try 2016. That should be a normal yield curve, I hope. Yeah, see it? January 1 of 2016. Some of those, they didn't have those treasuries. These are all treasury yields. Do you see how it just climbs very pretty? You see that? Nice. That's a classic, healthy yield curve at the end of 2016. Now let's take us to the end of, let's get here to 2000, the end of 2020. Take us clear down to the bottom. And we still had a normal yield curve. Now let's take us to the end of 2021. And see what happens. Still normal. Now let's take us to the end of 2022. Come on. 2022. And something begins to happen. Look. Do you see it? The yield curve. Oops, actually. Do you see there? The yield should be going up, but they're going down. Inverted and that was a heavy inversion. We expect an inversion to be maybe Two or three of these numbers are lower than the one before it one or two or three But there by the end of 2022 we had an inverted yield curve and it was a scary inversion of course 
economic forecasters are saying, well, that means that we're probably going to have a recession within six to nine months. Well, we had an economic pause. You wouldn't call it necessarily a recession. See, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth of GDP. So if you have one quarter of negative growth, that's not a recession, but it's still an economic downturn. If you had a two quarters of zero economic growth, that's technically not a recession, but it still means that the economy slowed down. And that's what happened. But now, let's take us to right now. We are in an economic recovery. We, some would argue we've, we've actually entered an expansion now. Look at this. Clear back to here. Clear back to the one of the shortest T-bills on forward. Clear out to the 20-year. It's inverted. Today. Now. It never corrected itself. If I'm not mistaken, that's the first time we've ever seen this happen. We are in, in a recovery, an expansion. The yield curve inverted months and months ago, and it never got right. You're seeing something that I've never shown before in a class. Well, except for the last semester, couple of semesters. An inverted yield curve with no evidence of a recession coming at all. We've recovered. Now, once the comp uh, a, an economy begins to recover, the yield curve should correct itself. It should come back to behaving like a normal, looking like that. Maybe it'll be unstable for a while, dip and then come back up, but it should eventually get itself right. And this yield curve isn't doing it. That is very unusual. Uh, that, that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's unique in, in our the economic history for which we have the data to be able to do yield curves, which is nearly a century of data, for heaven's sakes. We've never seen this before. So that's what's weird about this. Does that mean that we're going to get another recession, what we call a double dip recession? It doesn't seem to be saying that at all. We don't see any signs of a turndown, of a downturn. But there it is, right in front of us, looking at us stupid, like somehow this is supposed to be a normal thing. Can't, we can't, I can't tell you where it is from here, but this gives you a visual idea of a yield curve. Now, from the data, now if I'm, I'm going to, they, they won't let me keep my own bookmarks up here, it just keeps wiping them out, so I'm gonna to have to dig in here really quick and see if I can find it. Uh, yield curve. I'm looking for one that's called uh, visual visualization. There's a site that does a really nice one, but I don't know if they have it. Stock charts used to have a really nice one, a dynamic yield curve. Here it is.
Oh, hell. No, I don't want to see that. I don't think that's what I want to show you. Oh, come on. Oh, never mind that. There's what I want to see. Okay. Well, that one's old history. That one's old. <sighs> Find something else. I don't know where I would... Uh, I'm not going to try to find it uh, on here. There's one that I always used to show, and it's not here right now. I can't see it. But what I will do is put up a link to this, and it's a good piece to look at. So what's going on? The only thing that could possibly be driving that yield curve, the way it's behaving, well, there's actually one factor that might, but... This is a treasury. There's no default premium, no illiquidity premium. The only thing that could be driving it is a maturity premium, which that yield curve is saying is actually getting smaller the longer you go. That would be like firing water out of a hose and having it on its own get smaller as it went forward in time. There's only one other explanation. Expected inflation premium. It might be that those longer rates are using a lower and lower expected inflation premium than the shorter rates are. That would actually be a really great thing if that's what's going on. I don't think we've ever seen it before, but that might be the, that would be the only other explanation that could drive this. Is that the four, these rates out here at the Two, three, five, seven, ten, twenty, ten-year mark. They are saying that the expected inflation premium out there is going to be lower than it is back here. That's how we, the the main reason I'm doing it is just to get you used to using the thinking of how interest rates work. But the background is to be able to think ahead of the box, knowing what's in the box, but to say, is there something else that could be going on here? And the answer is maybe the expected inflation premium. That's the only thing that could be doing this other than the maturity premium. And if that is what's happening, we're seeing the first inverted yield curve that is not a warning sign. It's actually a good sign that something, uh, but who knows? That's out of my pay grade for right now. Now, the next thing that I want to show you, I'm going to reach out here. Let me take this rate right here. No, I can't, because these stupid rates are stupid. You can't do this with an inverted yield curve. Well, you can, but it's not particularly good. I'm going to just take a one-year, a two-year, and a three-year. Now let's say that the one-year yield, these are all annualized. The one-year yield is, let's say, 4.20%. The two-year is 4.35%. Got a rising yield curve, normal stuff. 
Okay, that is an annualized yield on a two-year. So we've got the rate on a one-year is 4.20%. The rate on a two-year is 4.35%. The problem with that is that that is an annualized yield that was actually the composite of two. This is 4.35% annualized over two years. over two years. So in other words, that's actually two interest rates. It's one plus the one year, 0 0.0420, times another one year rate that we don't know. And together, those two make 1 plus 0 0.0435 to the second power. This is a pain in the ass. It's one of the more complicated concepts in the class. Is that this X is what we call the forward rate for two years on year two. Because what we're seeing with our eyes is a composite that we just say is some rate to the second power. Working this out, and I would never do this on a test because I don't want to get my tires slashed, but I think they have a problem in the homework. So the way you would do this, whoops, let me do this. One plus X is going to be 1.0435 to the second power over 1.042. And then so x is going to be 1.0435 squared over 1.042 minus 1. I'm going to do this and then just give you what it kind of means. So if I were to take that and of course I deleted my calculator. I closed the calculator. So I'll try it again. I'm going to take 1.0435 squared divided by 1.042 That's saying that X is going to be our forward rate, the two second year forward rate is going to be 4.5%, 4.50%. So in other words, 
For one year, we'll have 4.20%. The next year, we'll have 4.5%. But that means that overall, we will have for the two years, 1.0, 1. uh, 4.35%. Now take it as far as you want. I won't ask for a forward rate on a quiz or an exam, but they do cover it in the book. And it is kind of noteworthy. If this were what the economy was doing, you would see that the forward rate is for the second year is higher than this rate, than the rate we'll have for the, for the coming year. What that means with that inverted yield curve, if you think about it, that would mean that the forward rates, in order for the whole yield curve to decline, each forward rate would have to be less than the year before it. So what this is forecasting is, what this is saying is that the markets think that interest rates are going to be falling over the, for the next 20 years, if the curve is inverting that long. And again, the only way that could probably happen is if the Fed is easing monetary policy, or so real the real rate's falling, or expected inflation is supposed to just vanish. You bad guys better get down to getting your test ready now. <laughs>